0: Today we're in Ephesians three fourteen through the end of the chapter, what the scholar E. K. Simpson calls the greatest of Paul's prayers. Um, I'd encourage you to pick up a go-deep sheet before you leave. They're out there by the door. You can look through that and go over your, the text then, again, on your own, and get more out of it. Or you can go to... Lockwoodchurch.org, you'll find the Go Deep questions on the website with lots of other useful information there, so I encourage you to do them. Ephesians four or 3, 14 through 19, Paul's writing, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, Kevin just prayed that we would be a church of prayer. Well, let me ask you, why? Why pray? To be more specific, let me ask you, why do you pray? And I guess to be more specific still, why do you pray for other people, uh, friends or, or family, Uh, your kingdom comrades here, um, or in other churches, we often talk about what to pray. Here's our prayer list. We don't often talk about why to pray. I suspect, and this is true of me, I suspect that we usually pray because we're aware of a need or a discomfort or a threat. We pray when we see danger coming to someone, their health, their security, their faith, But when we're unaware of a threat, we don't usually think to pray. That we don't think to pray when things are going well betrays a faulty understanding of what prayer is for and probably a false belief that God left us here to muddle through and keep ourselves intact in the process. But when that becomes more than we can handle, then it's time to pray. But do you see what that reveals about our view of God? We think he's like the butler in a Jeeves novel, the smartest, most capable person around who for some reason or other has nothing else to do in life than to help us get through our scrapes and make us comfortable. But to to think that is to misconstrue our purpose here as well as God's, his role and ours. The Apostle Paul doesn't think of God as if he were our Jeeves in heaven. Now, it's not that he doesn't want us to pray about our needs. He tells us to do precisely that, to present our request to God. But most of Paul's prayers don't seem to come out of a sense of discomfort or of fear or even of need. They come out of a readiness to join God in what he's doing. That's different than a readiness for God to join us in what we're doing verse 14, Paul says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. For this reason. Now we've seen this over and over again. Paul likes to explain the reason for his prayers. He told the Colossians that he'd been praying for them ever since he heard of their faith and their love. He told the Ephesians something similar. He was excited when he heard what these Christians were doing and he wanted to support them with his prayers. It's a little tougher to understand what prompted this prayer. Once again, he mentions there's a reason for it, but it's hard to be sure what that reason is. If you compare verse 14 to verse 1, you'll see they begin exactly the same way. For this reason, but in verse 1, Paul interrupted himself with what amounts to a long parentheses. The NIV conveys this with a dash, like he broke off what he was about to say to say something else. Most scholars believe that when he gets to verse 14, he finally comes back to what he wanted to say originally in verse 1. If Paul's just getting back to what he was poised to write in the first verse of the chapter, then the reason for the prayer needs to come out of the end of the previous chapter. So at the end of chapter 2, Paul wrote about what God has done to bring Gentiles like the Ephesians and the Colossians into his people. He also wrote about what God is doing, not just what he's done, but what he's doing to build his people, Jews and Gentiles alike, into a magnificent living temple in which God can dwell and through which God can act. That's tremendously exciting to Paul, and it sends him to his knees in prayer. However, I think Paul's reason for this prayer must also include the truth he mentions in verse 12. That through Jesus, it's possible for people to bring their requests directly to Almighty God, and he'll listen. To bring them to God with freedom and confidence. That's too great an opportunity for Paul to miss. So we request God's help for the Ephesians' role in the, the living temple project. That's why he kneels before the Father. Kneeling to pray was not all that common in Judaism. The normal posture for prayer was standing, eyes lifted to heaven, arms raised. When someone kneeled, now there are examples of this, uh, like Jesus in the garden, Paul on the beach uh, with the Ephesian elders. It was a sign of submission to God and of deep emotion. When Paul was awed by the amazing wisdom of God in bringing the Jews and Gentiles together, In this living temple project, and and he saw it happening before his eyes, it brought him to his knees. The principal request in this prayer, there there are actually multiple requests that flow out of this, but the principal request in this prayer is for God to give, you don't actually see that in English usually, but it's a request that God will give, Paul knows he's a giver, the Ephesians strengthening power. He asked them to do this out of his glorious riches or, better, according to his glorious riches. Paul's not asking God to deplete his riches by giving some of them to the Ephesians. He's asking the Father, the infinitely wealthy, incomparably generous God, to give in a way that's consistent with his famous largesse. Paul is not asking the Father to give these Christians money. He's asking him to strengthen them, to give them power. You realize God wants to empower you. He wants you to be strong and capable. Our culture talks a lot about empowering people, women, children, minorities, workers, gays, the transgendered, lately even white men, though it's almost always white men who are talking about empowering white men. But our society has a thing about power. It worships it. God does not want us to worship power. Creates all kinds of trouble. But he does want us to use power. When our culture empowers a person or a group of people, it divides them from other people. That's how cultural power works. It raises some up by forcing others down. God's power isn't like that. It doesn't divide. It unites. God's power does not enable people to get their way. It enables them to walk with others in God's way. God's power doesn't provoke resentment. It generates love. Now, hold on to this thought. God wants to empower you. God, this is C.S. Lewis, seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly and then in the twinkling of an eye. He empowers us. But why? Why? What does God want to accomplish by empowering us? Why does Paul ask God to strengthen the Ephesians, literally, to strengthen them with power? Before answering the why question, Paul brings up the where question. Where is this strengthening power going? And he says it's going to the inner being, as the NIV has it. Some translations put it, the inner person. It could also be translated... The inside man. Other than it's lack of gender sensitivity, I prefer that one. See, God has an inside man or woman working undercover in you if you've been born again. And that inside man needs to be resourced, reinforced, empowered if the work is to succeed. Look at verse 16. Let me give you a a more literal translation. That he might give you, according to the wealth of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inside man. The word the NIV translates strengthened there is only used three other times in the New Testament. Twice of the boy Jesus, who grew and became strong. That's this word. It's very important to God that we become strong. A great deal depends on that. I've met parents who do not empower their children, even when they're 20 or 30 years old. I could almost believe they prefer their children to remain weak so they can control them. God's not that kind of parent. He wants his children to become strong. He wants you to become strong. There's an important reason for that. Now look at verses 16 and 17 where Paul answers the why question. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? So you can be independent? No. So you can be tough? Not really. He strengthens you with power, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's always been the plan. It's the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God is transforming individuals from every race and people group so he can connect them to each other on the deepest level of people who are strong enough to love, loving enough to sacrifice, and pure enough to become the temple through which God meets, receives, and transforms the world. Another way of putting it is to say, as Paul did at the end of chapter 2, that God's people are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. For that to happen, Christ must live in each individual. As verse 17 puts it, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Carol Eat's granddaughter, Amanda, went to the Pete's office with a fever. And the doctor, you know, trying to be fun with her, he looks in her ears and he says, Who's in there? Donald Duck? And Amanda, with the forthrightness of a four year old, says, No. So he looks in her nose and said, Who's in there? Mickey Mouse again she said no he put his stethoscope to her heart and said who's in there Barney and Amanda answered no Jesus is in my heart Barney's on my underwear (laughs) Jesus is in my heart more precisely Jesus is in our hearts Remember what that is, the command center of every person who has faith in God and has confessed Jesus as Lord, the world's rightful ruler and our leader. What we share with each other and with the Tiwi believers in Australia, the Wolofs in Senegal, Papuans, Inuits, Ojibwe, Quechua, Hamong, and every other people group you can name, what we share is Jesus in our hearts. He's the connector. See, This is part of God's big plan. He's building something, something so great, a living temple, living temple, in which he dwells and through which people encounter him. So it's absolutely essential that every believer in the world be linked. Computing offers a helpful analogy. There's a supercomputer in Barcelona. Actually, there's quite a few supercomputers in Barcelona. But this one's known as the Mar Nostrum four. It's comprised of 48 racks with more than 3,400 Lenovo computer nodes, each with two Intel Plat- Platinum chips, each with 24 processors, which means that the main part of the computer, is a whole nother part of the computer which is always evolving, but the main part of the computer has 165,888 processors. To date, and I say to date because the computer keeps growing, the cost is somewhere around a quarter of a billion dollars. Some years ago, Virginia Polytech made its own supercomputer. It cost about five million dollars. They used faculty, technicians, and students to design a supercomputer from 1100 Apple Mac computers they bought off the shelf. And they built it in one month. The, the Mar the Marnostrum computers have been being built for years and years and years and years. By linking every one of those 1,100 computers, they made a supercomputer. And similarly, by linking every one of us with the same operating system, Christ, not Intel inside, but Christ inside, God is making a living temple. There's another kind of distributive computing known as quasi-opportunistic supercomputing. And which the processors, it uses lots and lots of processors, just like these other ones. Only they're geographically separated. They're not all in the same room, cooled by some you know super cooling system. But they're all networked. They're all connected. The actual work is distributed through all of these various computers across great distances. That's like Jesus' people. He unites them and is present in each of them by his spirit, wherever they are. And the network key, if you will, is faith in Jesus. Christ dwells in each person's heart by faith, For 17. So these believers are united together, even though they're separated by thousands of miles and have never met each other. They don't even know what the others are doing. The one controlling the network does, though. The goal, as we've seen... It's the universal rule over all things in heaven and on earth, under one head, even Christ. That's big. We're part of something big. Biggest thing in the world. So don't be discouraged. The architect and builder of this greatest of projects knows what he's doing. Knows what he's doing with you. Now, with all this talk about computers, we may need to be reminded of the principal request of this prayer that God will give these Ephesians power to become strong so that Christ can dwell in their hearts through faith. The word the NIV translates dwell is used of a person settling down somewhere. So for example, it's used of Jesus when he moved to Capernaum and made his home there. When we pray this prayer for someone, We're praying that God will do what's necessary in that person so that Christ can settle in and make himself home in that person's heart, his command center. Why do people need to be strengthened for that to happen? Why do we need to be strengthened for mild and meek Jesus to come and live in our hearts? Because genuine conversion is like a spiritual earthquake, Christ is bigger than your heart. If he comes to dwell in you, you'll need to be renovated. Walls will be knocked out. The structure reinforced. Imagine that the president of the United States was forced to relocate from from the White House to your house. You say yes to having him come. What happens then? Well, his forces come in, evaluate, and they start changing things. You need a fiber optic network. That entire house will need to be reinforced and shielded. A wing will be needed over here, and another one added there. And walls need to be moved, and ceilings raised, and tunnels digged, and on and on and on and on. You think having the president dwell in your house would require fewer changes than having Christ, the ruler of heaven and earth, dwell in your hearts? You need to be strengthened for that. It is a major project. A moment ago, I used the word conversion in regard to that project. Many people think of conversion as an instantaneous thing. I wasn't a Christian. I converted. Now I am. That's not the way it works. Conversion is a process that begins even before Christ comes to live in us, even before we're aware of what's going on. It begins with the Spirit's work to prepare our hearts and minds, then we say yes to God. We think of that as the moment. And it is a hugely important moment. But when we say yes to God, the Spirit begins changing us on the inside. That's what's in mind in verse 16, where Paul prays for the Ephesians to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in their inner being, in the inside man. Conversion continues throughout a person's life on earth, and I expect in heaven. That's why believers in Jesus... Keep growing, changing, becoming, if you won't misunderstand me, becoming bigger. The process can be uncomfortable. Knocking out our carefully constructed walls can be painful. Raising the ceiling can be scary. And the tools that God uses are sharp and disruptive but no one ever said that being a Christian was for wimps. That's why God's inside man or woman needs to be empowered. Paul asked God to give power to these Ephesians, and we should ask God to give that power to us. We're going to need it. I encourage you to take this seriously and start praying this prayer. Let's pick out three people that we know. Friends, ministry leaders, spouses, children. And pray this prayer for them this week. You can take, there's a little yellow slip of paper in the chair back in front of you. You can take that out if you want. And write down three people's names. If you can't think of anybody, then I would welcome you to pray this prayer for me. I would love that. Write down three people's names and pray for them this week and ask God to do this for each of those three people. But let's start by praying this prayer for ourselves. Let's ask God to make us bigger so Christ can dwell in our hearts by faith and we can know that he's dwelling there. We'll put this prayer on the screen and I invite you to pray it with me now. Father, I pray that out of your glorious riches, you may strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, amen.